Welcome back to the podcast. This week I'm joined by the fabulous Laura Jean Marsh. Laura Jean Marsh is a famous writer, actor and director of successful 2021 film Giddy Stratospheres. Laura started out in the Screaming Ballerinas, her band that she fronted in the noughties. She also DJed before finding her way into acting and then for that point on to writing and directing her own film. We spoke about all of this, plus I got a insight into what it was like for a female in the music industry. And then at the end we spoke about our four heroes to come for dinner. I hope you all enjoy the podcast. I'll be back again very soon with another fabulous guest. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Laura Jean Marsh, famous actor, writer and director of hit film Giddy Stratospheres, amongst hundreds of other things, DJing, <laughs> uh, front women in a band, lots of things to talk about. So what I usually start off with in the podcast, if you just get back to the start, tell me what life is like growing up and how that kind of shaped you and your route into who you are now. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, God, where's where I start? Well, I I was born in Trowbridge, which is like a little uh, West Country town uh, just outside of Chippenham and Swindon. So it's like sort of proper farmer land. Uh, and yeah, it's like it's quite a kind of incestuous suburban countryside town um and I grew up there in my grand's house uh me and my family my mum my dad and my two big brothers uh and we all grew up in the, we all kind of I started off there for the first three years of my life uh and then I moved my parents split up when I was three and um I moved to my mum and my brothers and I all moved to uh, Bath which is was nearby and the nearest place that my mum kind of wanted to start again so we moved to a little flat there and I went to school there and uh, my brothers are a lot older than me so they they left uh, home way before I did uh, and yeah my family are all pretty creative my dad is a musician um, my oldest brother is a musician also he's a he's a big influence on me um, and introduced me to a lot of the films and music that sort of influenced me. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I was a creative kid. Uh, my, coming from a family of musicians, it was sort of inevitable that I'd pick up a guitar and that, that's kind of what, I, what my whole life was really until sort of my mid-20s. Um, so I kind of, I went to a school, um, my, my secondary school was an all-girls school, but it was a pretty rough state school. Um, it was a bit like a mental asylum. <laughs> it kind of looked like a mental asylum and felt like one. Um, but I had a great art teacher there. The music uh, sort of, the music department wasn't great. It was kind of covered in cobwebs and forgotten about, right. um, which was a shame. But l- luckily I had, you know, like I said, my brothers were, were musical, my dad was as well. So I had that at home, you know. And uh, I kind of did a runner, really. I, I couldn't hack being in a small town. Uh, and my brother at that point was living in London. And I, I think what really 
uh, did it for me was I went to, when I was 15, I went to Glastonbury Festival and watched loads of bands and went to Reading Festival and watched loads of bands just for one day for mm-hmm. both of them. And then I was just done, really. I was like, well, you know, fuck this. <laughs> I'm moving to London. I'm going to start a band. So that, that's kind of summing up my childhood, really. Um, I didn't really feel... Uh, I didn't really feel that comfortable in a small town and I didn't really feel happy in school. So I had a great art teacher who was very inspiring, but I, I just wanted to be where where the music was and where people were yeah. were starting bands and stuff like that. So that's what I did. I find that um, quite a lot with schools, with like you're saying the music department was pretty shitty. Um, mm. I find that a lot with, with bands where... They, they don't really do much at school. Like the, the music departments don't seem to be very good up and down the country. And it's, no. it's mainly kind of self-taught at home that kind of gets you there, isn't it? Yeah. What sort of bands were, were you into then when you were going to Glastonbury and Reading? Well, I mean, I was brought up listening to loads of sort of 80s and 90s stuff so I was really into Britpop I was really into Smiths I was really into sort of New York sort of punk and stuff like that uh and my dad you know was really into Beatles and Cream and and stuff like that so I had all sorts of influence coming from everywhere um uh, so I was really I was like a real music geek uh I was obsessed with Nirvana and and stuff like that but obviously all that stuff wasn't available in the mid 90s so I, I you know I think the first bands I remember uh I, the years I went to, so I saw No Doubt live at Glastonbury and saw the Chemical Brothers and I think at Reading I saw Placebo um and I think Rage Against the Machine, it was that year. Uh, but I, I think, you know, I was, I think it was before the Libertines had just sort of, I think the Strokes was what did it for me really. Cause even though they weren't a UK band, when that first album came out, it really did sort of, there was, there was not that, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, but there wasn't a lot really scene wise yeah. until well, the Strokes, well, I'm sure that everyone, I'm sure everyone said this to you on this pod. Yeah, that when the Strokes sort of um, first album came out, it kind of kicked everyone's asses into gear and lots of amazing stuff started happening here as well. So, yeah, I think it was the Strokes that did it for me. And then it kind of opened up. I I started getting really into lots of American Riot Girl stuff. And, yeah, my kind of geeky music taste started sort of expanding into different areas. I was obsessed with The Cure. and I think I went to a kind of indie club night. I was way too young in London. I was way too young to go to it. I think I was about 16. Uh, and I met a couple of girls at Reading Festival when I was 15, who then invited me to a club night at the, oh God, it was in Tufnell Park. It was a club night on New Year's Eve. So I came down and stayed with them for the night. I'm not sure how I persuaded my parents to let me do that, but they were playing everything from the strokes to like, you know, all those indie bangers that we loved back then. And I just, yeah, I had to move here, really. Class. I, I mind when the, the Strokes came out, I think I went to see them. I think they played like two gigs in London and then they ended up on the Tea in the Park bill. I think somebody pulled out the Tea in the Park and they were put in and 
they weren't even announced. It was just like a kind of surprise. And I, I was down the front at the main stage and they came on. And it, uh, felt, it felt like nobody else around me knew who they were. Mm-hmm. And like as soon as I seen the silhouette of them coming on the stage, the, the hairstyles and all that, I knew yeah. exactly who they were. One of the best gigs in my life, one of the best sets I've ever seen. Yeah. And it was like ground zero when they yeah. appeared. And that's, yeah. I mean, again, that's a big... A constant theme of the podcast. Every day that comes on says the strokes was the ones that kicked it all off. So you moved to London then. Uh, yeah. You formed the was that that then when you formed the band? Um, yeah, it wasn't straight away. I think I got sucked into uh, you know happily sucked into this exciting time where lots of people were starting bands and there was a lot of club nights where there would be lots of new bands um, and I made friends really quickly with some really creative lovely sort of young kids that were a little older than me but I was sort of welcomed in um, and it felt really like family so there was a lot of club nights going on where you'd have like five bands um, and everyone would kind of know each other uh, and I was sort of writing songs. Uh, I started DJing um, badly, <laughs> but in those days you'd, pe- you'd be paid with drinks and I started playing records and, and, you know, in between bands at various different events and stuff, which was really great because, you know, if you're a music lover, it's kind of the best job when you're in, in your late te- teens and early 20s. Um, and then I met a couple of musicians, uh, the, the guy that I started Screaming Ballerinas, my band with, uh, was called Ollie, it was, is called Ollie Pound. Um, we're still good mates. I, I was his best man at his wedding, <laughs> uh, best woman. Um, and uh, he and I developed some songs that I'd written on acoustic guitar. He was a really great sort of punk, uh, you know, anthemic punk guitarist. And he was a lot of fun. And we were we were quickly like siblings. And I think, I think, that was such a draw for me because a lot of us were from other towns and we were kind of on our own in London. So being part of this music scene and being able to start bands and hang out together and, and feel close to each other was, was a really exciting time. Um, so yeah, me and Ollie wrote, well, we, we developed some songs that I'd written uh, and we pulled in some other musicians uh, and yeah, it was a really exciting time because I was kind of living the dream that I'd always hoped for, you know, being in a little indie punk band. I don't think I ever really wanted to be like massively famous. I just wanted to be in a cool little band. Yeah. Um, and we we did our launch. Our first gig was at the Metro, which was on uh, Oxford Street, which is no, no longer there, but was a really cool place to go and see sort of club nights and bands and stuff like that. And it was a really exciting night because I don't think we knew that we were going to have the response that we did, but people really dug it. Um, and after that, we just started getting booked for lots of gigs. And MySpace was was a big thing then, as I'm sure you remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got a bunch of fans, uh, and especially in, in uh, Italy, for some reason, um, you know, what was so great about MySpace is even if you weren't signed, you could kind of spread the word. And uh, in Italy, I think, especially in like Rome and Milan and some of the bigger towns and cities, they they really loved female fronted indie pop music. Uh-huh. Like they really did. They didn't. There wasn't so much of a kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to say it was 
it was very blokey in the UK. You know, there weren't that many female fronted bands that were really doing well, but yeah. they really loved us over there. And uh, so we were lucky because we got to go and do a couple of like really fun tours uh, over there and play really epic big gigs and people knew all the words to the songs I'd written. It was insane. You know, I was 19 <laughs> and uh, it was uh, probably the first time in my life that I'd felt really properly happy um, and excited and felt like I was part of something. So, yeah, that was that was some of the best times of my life, really. I hadn't heard of the band up until a few weeks back, and mm. I mean, I was watching some of your some of the videos on YouTube this morning. And mm. the band, I can't remember the name of the song, uh, but you're dancing about with Margaret Thatcher mass and David Cameron mass, and it's probably resonates in now as to what's going on in the country. Yeah. It's a brilliant song, but uh. all, all the videos were class. Um, and I'll Thank you. More of yeah, we didn't really get there here. I mean, it was tough. We got close. Um, I think, yeah, it was it was it was tough because I was so young. So you know, I was making these really big sort of business—not business, but it's a lot. It was a lot of responsibility because it was my it was my band, and I was quite young. And the, and although we were having a lot of fun, we got kind of. You know, we had a couple of managers that really wanted to sell us as this big, uh, you know, mainstream um, label band. And I don't think we were really that. So we didn't really get the opportunity to just sort of exist. <laughs> so they kept trying to, you know, pimp us out to big labels. And I'm not sure if that really was what we were, what we wanted or what we were about. And I think after a while, you know, we, we just felt like we were banging our heads against the wall. So we'd go over to Italy and do these amazing gigs and, and have lots of support. And then over here, I think, yeah, we just didn't quite get, we just didn't quite get the leg up that, that we needed, really. Yeah. Uh, which is a shame, yeah. but I still have lots of good memories from that time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's definitely, it was definitely a band that, that could have went further, I think, after watching your videos and things like that. The, the DJing then as well, I mean, that seems like just a, a right good job, just sitting there, just yeah. playing the tunes that you love and you must get a buzz yeah. people up on the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, 30, I'm 36 now and, and although lots of people still DJ at my age, I think I, I couldn't, I think with, with now that the way my career has gone in a different direction, I wouldn't be able to stay up until three in the morning. <laughs> But, um, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't work. But yeah, it was a great, it was great fun. Like, especially then when it was all about partying and, and you know, music was so exciting. Watching live music was so exciting. That if When you get to DJ after seeing a band you love and, and everyone's jumping about to these massive indie bangers and stuff. It's just, it was the greatest, greatest job in the world. And I was doing it mainly with my best mate uh, Eloise at the time we ended up forming a, a starting a club night as well yeah where we put lots of bands on uh, called Dolly Rockers uh, and yeah it was just really sort of relentless like like crazy like club club stuff so, you know everyone would everyone felt really like they were part of something and it was a lot of fun um yeah, I mean, I think occasionally I still DJ at my friends' weddings, or uh, like if I, I, I haven't done it for a while since before COVID kicked off. But um, 
even I always said I didn't want to do it and then whenever I was there doing it I just absolutely love it so it is a lot of fun yeah my, my friend he does one he does like a kind of brick pop indie night once a month and I go to that every month and I'm kind of like you want to go to the barn all day like an hour or something because it's, it's just dead easy and it's it's it yeah. buzz, man, just watching every day, getting off on your yeah. games that you play. What happened then? When did the acting come about? So when I was in the band, I, you know, obviously I was meeting lots of people and like, you know, there were a lot of uh, comedians and, uh, you know, people that were making short films, people that were making comedy sketches and things like that. They were kind of weaving their way in and out of the same sort of scenes and club nights that I was a part of. And I just sort of, I, I got, I started sort of getting, uh, I was completely broke. I was working in a clothes shop and earning very little money from DJing and spending that all on booze mm. and other things. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and like, you know, just about making the rent I was living above the shop I was working in, <laughs> um, in this little shithole flat above a shop. And I, I I suddenly started getting asked to like be in stuff and being offered like a bit more money than I was earning, you know, like bits and bobs. And I was like, oh, this is another thing I can do, um, you know, being on screen. And I just sort of really took to it I absolutely loved acting I love being on set and uh, I think because I'd always been obsessed with filmmaking and, and movies like almost I would say music and movies and filmmaking were my kind of geeky um, subject matters that I would obsess about um, and I think I just fell in love with being on set really and that was it so I yeah I got an acting agent pretty quickly um, and I started sort of using bits of money that I was earning through getting these job, these little jobs here and there to kind of further my uh, education in acting, you know, doing acting classes, making sure that I was doing the best I could. And then I kind of learned on the job, just kept getting, I got, got booked on playing little roles in things like uh, Peep Show and Uncle, which had Nick Hellman in it, which is why, you know, I, I ended up working with Nick again recently on my movie. Um, and, you know, little sketch shows, comedy sketch shows like Dom Jolly and stuff like that. And it was just the, the most fun ever. I was just like, shit, I can do this for a living. This is insane. Like, I've got something else. I had no education. I was like, oh, this is really lucky. <laughs> really lucky that I've found something that I can do that I think I'm good at. Um, and because I don't know, I think maybe because I was songwriting, um, I kind of fell out of love with the music industry, uh, not music itself, but the music industry sort of did, did me in, I think, because I was so young and it was just all quite stressful trying to feel responsible. For, I was feeling so responsible for this band that wasn't really getting anywhere um, that I kind of just transferred that creative energy into this new sort of path for myself and it kind of I think it kind of saved me actually because I I could have gone either I could have gone in any direction and that I, I you know transferring all my creative energy into writing short films you know writing scripts and sketches and working with people um I must have been about 22 23 and then since then it's just been it's been acting and writing and making my own stuff and that's kind of what happened. That's um, that's brilliant. I mean, like, all those shows, like Dom Jolly, obviously, 
legend. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beep show, one of the most successful British sitcoms, probably as well as Uncle. Like they're all, all good. Yeah. I mean, I was tiny, tiny roles in those things, like, but it was still, um, it was still a leg, it was still a bit of a kind of introduction into a world that I really, you know, took. I fell in love with it you know it was so much fun and I loved the kind of variety of doing something different every day and I actually even enjoyed auditioning you know going into a room and being put on the spot I quite quite like the adrenaline of that as well. Well I mean there must be some kind of adrenaline to the fact that you've kind of you've had no training uh, mm. in, in any of this and it just kind of find your way into it and kind of as if you're kind of blagging your way into it and then Look where you're at now with a film <laughs> and things like that. It's, it's yeah. Look back. Yeah, there was a lot of blagging uh, and there was a lot of hard work. Um, I think, you know, I sometimes wish that I did have more training early on or I, I kind of discovered that I wanted to act early on. But I think that all those years of being in a band and, you know, all the life experience I had from such a young age has kind of benefited me with my writing and with my acting as well because you can kind of without any life experience or without experiencing any shit or any trauma or any you know you know anything hard and anything high that's real I think I mean it's quite hard to to create stuff that you're you know without any of that so I I I think I've done all right despite the kind of lack of official training but yeah, it, it would have been nice to have a bit of a bit of a proper education, but I, I think I don't really have any regrets. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, so you started off with acting. So if you're saying you've had like no training, how, how did the, the writing come about and how hard was that? Obviously, we know. Kind of um, well, I think I'd always been writing sort of sort of stories and scripts that I never used even when I was in a band I was always writing ideas and, and bits and pieces um because I'm a bit of a sort of relentless uh creator so I was always sitting with it was probably all shite but <laughs> I was always writing some I was always writing stuff um and I think from from like as soon as I started acting and I started learning more about the kind of machine of how you how you create stuff like film, like short films and sketches and things like that, watching other people doing it. I was inspired and I got the confidence to do that myself. So I started writing short films and bringing together some of the people that I'd met from various different film crews that I had really gelled with and, and got on with. And I just sort of did it. You know, I think my advice to anyone out there that feels like they're not worthy of, of making stuff just because on paper they shouldn't do it's just you know if you've got an idea and you've got you've got like you know you're inspired to do something you know you can do it you know you can bring in people that support you as long as you've got a good team around you that's helping you and people that that you care about working with you and care about the idea you can kind of bring things to life uh, and that's what I did that's that's brilliant advice my my problem Mm. is I've got too many ideas (laughs) <laughs> and they're all kind of floating about fighting with each other. Yeah, no, t- same, mate. You know, I've always got too much going on. It's, it's, yes, I'm always sifting through the shit and trying to work out what the good ideas are. Um, and sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. You know, I think that's that's normal. You can't get it right every time. <laughs> so what was the, 
what was your kind of first thing that you brought out as a that you wrote? It wasn't a Gary Stratosphere, was it? You had stuff. No, no, no. I I I wrote so the first short film I wrote and directed was called Devotion, uh, and it was about uh, a couple that were uh, a, a drug addicts, and um, it's kind of it's kind of exploring the connections between different addictions. Uh, so it's kind of about the connection between love addiction and, and drug addiction. And it's, yeah, that was the first thing I made uh, with my friend Jake, who now lives in Australia. Um, and that ended up winning loads of awards, actually. I mean, it, it was it was really cool because he was really positive to be around and very kind of full of beans and energy and and I was a little bit harder on myself but full of ideas and we wrote this thing and it was all shot in one take it's like a one shot film uh-huh. uh, and we worked with this amazing DP and we we yeah we entered it into loads of film festivals and it did really well and and I think that was not not that those things should matter but it did kind of give me a little bit of a uh a bit of kind of validation I guess sometimes you do need a little bit of that uh and then after that I made another sort of three or four short films I started writing sketches and then I started getting quite a lot of acting work um which distracted me for a while you know lots of films where I was actually being cast in, in some proper productions and and I I think I I spent a few years just sort of working in other people's productions but um, sort of getting better as an actor um, yeah so that kind of took over for a long time but that was a great period of time as well because I was I was you know working as a professional actor and that I, I you know I fucking love acting as well so I think the two work hand in hand um, yeah and then I guess that kind of brings us almost up to date because I uh, when Covid first kicked in I suddenly had loads of time on my hands because I was at home like everyone was and I wrote Giddy Stratospheres which is my first feature film and that's what that's what brought us here yeah the the thing that I mean the, the thing with Giddy Stratospheres is kind of I'm amazed that nobody had come up with the idea before like the set in the the noughties music scene because it's mm. something that's for people of our age, it's it's a massive it's a massive scene, but there's been nothing out about it before. So, mm. was that kind of one of your reasons? Was that obviously for living through that scene? Was that prominent in your mind to do something? Um, not really. I mean, I think what happened was I I was on a what what triggered it off was I was I was on a when we were only kind of allowed out for one bit of exercise every day I've told this story before so it's probably getting boring for people but it's the truth I mean I, I went for a run in in Pims Park in Edmonton and I uh I was listening to sort of indie bangers uh to kind of keep keep me going <laughs> and uh Giddy Stratospheres came on um uh kind of just out of nowhere and I you know from back in the day when we used to have those kind of five bands in a night and you'd have all these great sort of acts that all kind of knew each other either from London or from outside London and uh Long Blondes 
one of the most memorable gigs for me ever was uh, Long Blondes played at Nambuka, which is a place I used to hang out in a lot with some really cool people, lots of creative young musicians and, and people putting on cool nights and stuff. And the Long Blondes gig was amazing because there was just glass and glitter everywhere and everyone was going absolutely mental. And they, that, that really triggered off some memories for me of a couple of particular events in my life which shaped me and traumatized me and I I there was a few sort of um heavy sort of moments that I'd never really explored and I think I wrote about them uh I think it was a coincidence really that it was set in that time um you know it wasn't like I sat down and went oh indie indie noughties music let's do this I think uh it was more like me kind of coming to terms with and writing about period a period of time in my life which shaped me and wasn't a particularly easy time to to explore um and it made sense for me to bring that time to life and obviously it was a lot of fun you know getting all the music together and a lot of those bands that are on the soundtrack are and were friends of mine so you know it was it was really it was really exciting to be able to bring the storyline to life with that music because that was the music that I was that was sort of playing live and you yeah. know in my headphones at the time so um yeah I think it was kind of a coincidence in a way that uh it's become like the first noughties movie that <laughs> anyone's made I think it's been it's been amazing that people have recognized that but I can't say that that was that was necessarily my plan, but I am, I'm really proud of, of bringing all those tunes to the screen. And I think it really, it really suits the storyline. And, and yeah, it was great fun contacting everyone and going, can I use your tune? And, you know, and everyone was so supportive, especially the Long Blondes, because they've been like part of the fam the Giddy Stratosphere's film family from the word go. So, yeah. Would you find it therapeutic doing something like that? Because it's, it's maybe kind of, you're able to kind of move on for that part of your life? Um, yeah, I mean, it's weird this morning because I'm weirdly since it's since the film's been uh, this year, like so after Christmas, it went it's just been released onto Amazon Prime. So you could buy it last year, but now it's free for Amazon Prime uh, people, people with the membership. It suddenly had a new lease of life. So loads more people are watching it. And I'm getting so many messages from people that I, you know, random people just on social media and stuff, just going how much, just saying how much they've loved the film again. And it's being released um, worldwide this year as well. So it's out in the US and Canada and here, but it's going to be released in Europe and the rest of the world as well this year. So, you know, it's kind of this ongoing thing. So I do, even though it was, it was therapeutic making the film, it was also quite hard, like emotionally for me, because I was dealing with a few issues of my own with the storyline. Uh, and it was also just, a, you know, a, a tough thing to pull off. Um, and now, I, you know, the, the film is living on. I'm working on other ideas for my next projects, but, but Giddy is still living on. So, I, every, you know, I love having these chats with, with people. And, uh, you know, I think every week I kind of um, I learn something else about it if that makes sense so yeah. it's it's not it's not gonna die <laughs> it's not gonna die I think I'm still still kind of uh going through it a little bit with with my emotions and and how I feel about making it to be honest do you feel any pressure with like your, your upcoming projects 
obviously because of how well received Gaddy's been? Um, no, I, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, like, I think it's only natural to feel nervous about new ideas just because you want to be able to pull them off. But if anything, I just feel really excited um, about my new ideas. And, and um, you know, I'm talk I've got two things up my sleeve that I'm concentrating for on first. And I've got a really great uh, team behind me now um, helping me kind of bring things to different platforms and stuff like that. So I've, I, when we were in the editing process of Giddy, I sat down and I wrote like a whole, I wrote an entire mini series set in the 90s called Stutter, um, which is kind of set in a alternate Britpop universe. Um, and that was, it just sort of pulled out of me and I'm really excited about that. And I've also written a kind of mockumentary film uh, which is inspired by Christopher Guest, sort of a little bit of Christopher Guest, uh, set in a little village similar to the one I was born in. Um, and I, I'm actually really excited about them because they're not sort of about me. <laughs> um, I think Giddy's always going to be a little bit more of a stab in the heart um, for me in terms of uh, whenever I talk about it, it's always a bit more raw. Um, but with these new ones, it's just like, it's, it's pure enjoyment, really, just talking about them and trying to get them off the ground and stuff. So I think I'm really excited and I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of, of Giddy and what it's enabling me to do now. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you built up a, a big fan base just due to this, you know what I mean? So if all the people that have watched the film follow you and watch the, what you've got up and coming, it's... it's the sky's the limit on that hopefully yeah. yeah yeah hopefully I think I don't want to be too complacent um I'd like to be able to um the next project I want it to be sort of bigger and better and and a higher because Giddy was such a mini tiny budget you know we, we did a lot with what we had um and there was a lot of favors being brought in from from people that cared about the project um <laughs> Although, although everyone was paid, it was, you know, not, not the most amount of money in the world for everyone. And I think with this next couple of pr projects I've got coming, I really want to be able to raise the production value and make sure that it's it's a bit bigger. And, uh, and I want to be able to achieve certain things like with the 90s show, I want to be able to have big festival crowds mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just stuff like that. Being able to have the finance to actually pull off some of these epic moments that I want to um yeah so I'm excited to, to you know I feel feel really focused and um and excited to bring these new projects to life. Uh, how was it working with Nick Helm and Richard Darren because well, I've, I've had Nick Helm on the podcast and probably it did been around about the time when uh, maybe you were shooting the film and things which mm. I wasn't aware of so I think I spoke to him for two and a half hours and there's no talk about yeah, the stratospheres in the podcast, but um, obviously he's a he's a brilliant actor, brilliant writer and comedian, so how was it working with him on your film? Nick's the mate, he's, he's like, uh, I love him, basically. I just think he's, he's so talented in so many different ways. I mean, he's got so many strings to his bow. Um... So from a fan's point of view, you know, I, I obviously I was really happy to have him play my brother, you know, my brother, my real brother, who he, he was playing um, is, is the 
is my best mate and my biggest influence and always been uh you know he's always been he's 11 years older than me but we're like twins it's re really weird like we, we even when I was tiny you know him and I were really kind of close and um had similar sort of senses of humor and and he like I said he, he introduced me to all the movies and all the music that's kind of made me who I am so it, but I it, I worked with Nick years ago and uh you know it was on a set so we got on really well but we were there to do a job and when I wrote Giddy Stratospheres, I was like, oh, God, I've got to get Nick Helm to play Tom, to play my brother. Or oh, he's called Tim in the film. Like, because I just, he was just the perfect, to me, I just knew he'd be perfect for it. Um, and I think he's an incredible actor. Uh, he's incredibly, like, for somebody that's such a big personality, he, when he's on set and when he's acting, it's like a real masterclass in how to be real because he he doesn't he just sort of slips into it and he's like he's just he's an incredible actor but yeah I, 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 was, I was desperate to get him and I sent him the script and he said yes <laughs> and then you know when we, we we were on set he was just incredibly supportive and obviously it was a lot of stress for me and it was a lot for me because I was making this film about things that were quite stressful and also I was trying to kind of direct and produce uh I didn't produce the whole I mean my my friend Beth uh, was the main kind of producer on the film but I was overseeing a lot of stuff and also trying to handle a massive cast <laughs> during Covid uh, so it was a lot you know it was a bit like being a head teacher as well but Nick was like a big brother you know and my real big brother lives in New York and uh, I miss him a lot and we usually see each other a lot but because of Covid we haven't been able to see each other for years for a couple of years now so having Nick about uh, you know obviously I didn't put too much pressure on him to pretend to be my brother in real life but he was very much like like just very loving and very um, supportive and uh, he's just a real really good bloke um and he absolutely smashes the role <laughs> so yeah big love for Nick um and Rich Richard Herring um I just again like when I wrote the part uh I just those scenes I was like oh, Richard Herring has got to play this he's got to play Murray like because you know there was I, I won't just do any spoilers I'm terrible for always giving away stuff with the film but I just knew that he'd be perfect for it. And I, sorry, my cat is about to attack us, um, but hopefully she won't meow. No panda, I'm doing a podcast. Um, so yeah, Rich was, uh, Rich said yes straight away as well. Um, and he was an absolute joy. Uh, again, really supportive and really good a really good actor as well I think because he's so famous in his own right for being a comedian for having this podcast and being such a big personality um I, th I don't think he'd done any acting for much acting for a while but he was just so charismatic and so brilliant um and yeah he smashed it and and he's someone I'm happy to still have in my life and I've got I've got uh, a couple of characters in mind that I want him to play in my next things as well. So yeah, I'm really lucky, really lucky to have those guys um, in my universe now, in my stratosphere. But I, I, <laughs> you have people that to kind of lean on and, and bounce ideas off as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And that, that's definitely 
you know, I, I don't, I'm not much of a dictator when it comes to my scripts. Like I, I like it when people improvise around them and I sort of want things to feel real. And Rich was just, his improvisation as, as that character, like we were just, you know, all trying not to laugh. <laughs> when we were in those you know the church scene in particular is a really heavy moment although there's um com comedic elements in there uh sorry the, the listeners can't actually see what's going on but my cat's got <laughs> my cat's got panda's got her ass in my face um yeah it, even though those heavy moments were like you know heavy tear-jerking moments you know rich's character is so silly and so so funny and and you know he, he just made us laugh all the time he's he's just got that natural natural charisma that um i'm really lucky i i got in there for murray yeah it's it's a brilliant film and if any any of my listeners haven't watched it i would urge you there'll be a link in the, the description and all that for them to find it but it's a brilliant brilliant excellent film uh, oh mate, that really means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah, I mean the soundtrack. Even just I listened to the soundtrack three or four times a week on my way to work. A uh, Oh, that's between, so cool. A bounce between Daddy Stratosphere soundtrack and um, Mind the Book. What's the book called? Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. Yeah, it's a great. Look, I've got it here. As well. I I get the soundtrack for that. I just bounce between these two when I'm walking to my work. Brilliant soundtrack. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. I think my cat's outside fighting now as well. <laughs> I love that we're being attacked. Oh, and your dog. Yeah, he's fresh from the vet. <laughs> uh, obviously, just get back to the. Come on, I want to meet the dog. This isn't much fun for people listening, but I want to meet the dog. Yeah. Is it a lad? Uh, he's a lab. Ah, he's a boy. He's a Labrador dog. The boy, what's his name? Dylan. Oh, hello, mate. <laughs> Dylan. Yeah. Hello, Dylan. <laughs> oh, he's so sweet. He doesn't seem too traumatised from his vet no, experience. He's, he's fine. He's fine. He's a tough guy. Yeah. Right, so just touching back on the the naughty scene and you being a female, because I've only had I've only had yourself and Gemma Clark for Baby Shambles. She's only had a female of a doing. Mm. Obviously it's there've been things that came to light here the, the last few months with kind of safer gigs for women and stuff like that. Obviously I am mm. a fan of the snuts. I think it was November they stopped a show and posted on social media about males being assholes at gigs basically and mm. things like that. So just kind of what was your experience uh, the music scene as a female back then? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I do have before, I mean, before I was in a band, I definitely have memories of, you know, crowd surfing at festivals and people, because I was always really, I re really like going mental in mosh pits and, and w when I watch gigs, um, I'd kind of bugger off on my own and leave my friends so that I could be down the front. I was one of those sorts of guys. Um, and I would, you know, if I ever wanted to crowd surf, which I did a lot, you'd get groped pretty much every time. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'd kind of like, luck I mean, I was quite a feisty little teen. So I'd, you know, kick, kick, at, <laughs> kick at people if they did it, you know. But you, yeah, I mean, it's weird. 
because you just sort of look back on it and you're like that's fucked up yeah you know that's really fucked up that you just you know not just one guy you know not with just one cunt in the crowd it's it was just like every time it would be like oh free for all um and that's really fucked up so I think you know I'm I'm friends with Jason from Sleaford Mods and he's an absolute legend because he always calls it out and always makes a point of saying something at gigs about that in in a really direct way so I think I think that having men who are sort of idolized in these bands and or artists in general calling it out so that people maybe think twice about it I think does help but yeah it definitely was an issue and it still is an issue that kind of stuff Um, and I'm sure that a lot of other girls wouldn't kick somebody and would feel really traumatized and it's fucked up mate yeah it really is and I think it's just about I think we're lucky that people talk about it more now and people shed more light on on it as being a problem because when you're younger I think girls can be prone to feeling like they've done something wrong themselves and that's why it happens Mm -hmm. um which is a much bigger issue to talk about um you know I think just in general just not making it about there's something that we've done or it's something we have to do to change it definitely needs to be those individuals not all guys you know not all men do it but there are a large group of people that do and I think in those kind of almost like fate you're almost like you know with thousands of people in a crowd um you can kind of go unnoticed almost doing something like that so I think I mean I think that mm. like I can't mind it happening, but it was obviously hard. I can't mind like seeing any incidents or anything like that when I was going to gigs all the years ago. But it, it, mm. it was happening, uh, and it's only kind of nowadays where people are speaking out about it more. And see, as soon as it happens, you, you do notice it. I mean, I, as I said, it's yeah. not, not spoken about it in the start of November, and I went to a gig with my wife the end of November, and there was a fight between two guys here above because yeah. stuff like that happening. So the minute that there's a bit of prominence and a bit of light shed on it, it's, it's good. Mm. It gets the awareness out there and people are then able to yeah. see what's going on. I think it's even just good. You, you know, this, I would imagine, I don't want to assume, but, you know, there was, it was a quite a male-dominant, era that the noughties mm. indie music scene i mean there were loads of amazing female uh fronted and and, and bands with all girls and you know uh, or couple of members that were girls there was loads of women about it's just that the big names at the top covers of the covers of the enemy and and you know most of the bands that were making all the money and and you know headlining were men yeah. um but i think that just you know, you even mentioning it and anybody talking about it is a good thing. Um, but in terms of the actual music industry at the time, yeah, I think I think that I don't think my band were the best band in the world, but we certainly had a couple of big tunes. But I think we were always told, I was always told that female fronted indie rock music didn't sell. So I would find myself in these offices with my manager and my band and they would say, you know, just, you know, Karen O and the AES were were kind of doing really well, but there wasn't that, there wasn't much else, you know, 
there weren't many ladies and I think people want to make money so we were constantly told that we we just wouldn't we wouldn't make it we wouldn't get anywhere (laughs) so that's a bit of a kick in the teeth you know but luckily things are really different now and there's lots of amazing women and LGBTQ artists are doing really well and things are much more open so it's mental to think that kind of you were getting told stuff like that and like you don't know make it because it, I mean there must have been plenty of money to be made for, for bands like that mm. if there, there wasn't that many female fronted bands out there it's surely a market that anybody mm. with a bit of kind of financial sense would kind of want to exploit you yeah I don't know I mean like I said I was so young then I think I, I can't really give an informed opinion on what it really was because I was so young I think I still regress a little bit when I talk about it because I can only see it really from my the perspective of my 19 20 year old self yeah but I do remember feeling just like this is a bit unfair you know there's just all these lads you know hard fire on the cover of the enemy again (laughs) and uh and like I'm there you know third on the bill and you know it, it it was kind of Again, I don't think we were the best band in the world, but we did have a couple of bangers and we weren't really given the opportunity to get them out there, which is which is a shame. And like I said, there were loads of bands that had women in them and really good ones, you know, and it was a shame that, that we didn't. But, I, you know, that things have changed. I think things are moving on and there's lots of amazing ladies out there doing well. So, but it was tough. Yeah, it was. I, I did get my confidence was really knocked and it took me a while to get it back. Um, but I think I got it back through uh, my new career. <laughs> but it was tough being a woman, for sure. A girl, I should say. I was a little girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll be posting links to your screaming ballerinas as well. That'll be with some links to that for people to check out as well. So you might get kind of some fans. Yeah, you'll be bombarded with that now. So. Obviously, oh, I don't go, know. Yeah, hope. Cool. Before we go, uh, obviously, we the podcast called Time for Heroes, and I asked for four heroes to come for a, a dinner. And, yeah. Um, obviously, I say yeah. four, but I mean there can be as many as you want. I can be honoured. Oh, okay. Um, because it's it is really hard to narrow it down. So, but I just fire away with you. Um, well, I thought about it because I, I have a lot of heroes, but I was thinking about who would be good crack, you know. <laughs> um, so I've got Bjork. Bjork's one of my biggest influences just in general. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's a bit mad. So I think that'd be quite fun. Um, I've got David Lynch, who's probably my biggest influence as a director. Right. Uh, I've got, and I've got Jack Nicholson, who's my favourite actor of all time. And he's oh. you, he's got to be a lot of fun. Uh, also, I have this weird idea I don't know no one's seen him for years he hasn't appeared like in public for years and I think he might I have this weird feeling he might be dead (laughs) there's this like loads of people there's like this rumor going around that Jack Nicholson is actually not not alive anymore I'm like I'd like to invite him to my dinner party just to see if he's alive um and there's an amazing American comedian comedian called Wanda Sykes if you know Wanda she's a really fucking funny um so those are my four because I think it would be really fucking fun 
Um, I did have Bowie, but I reckon like everybody, uh, you've probably had a few people say Bowie, so I didn't say that. And I did have Christopher Walken, and I have no idea why, but I just thought he'd be fun, <laughs> fun as well. Oh. Um, and yeah, some of my other heroes, are, like I, I just thought wouldn't be, they're really talented, but might not be good, like good chat. <laughs> And I'm gonna. What was the other thing you wanted to ask me? What I was gonna cook? Was that I what was gonna cook these guys? Yeah, let's just really find out if you're any good at cooking. I well, I am actually. I have you know, very good at cooking. Um, <laughs> and I think I'd do like a Vietnamese uh, spread. <laughs> um, I'm really into making ramen at the moment and pho, like so, like noodle soups. So I'm gonna make them all that. Uh, and I'm going to do like spring rolls, summer rolls, satay, garlic sautéed vegetables. And yeah, I'm going to do a whole Vietnamese have, feast for me. And... You would need to have Christopher Walken on it because he's time on Deer Hunter. Because that was in, set in Vietnam, wasn't it? So you would need to have... I didn't think of that. It might trigger him. Yeah. Is that what you're worried about? It might <laughs> Vietnamese well, food might that, trigger him. I think just... Um, Jack Nicholson and Bjork alone, like the interaction between the two would be. Yeah. It might be fiery. You know, I. Yeah, definitely. I think it would be, it would be, there might be a few fights and I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Could, you know, we, I'd, feel, I'd definitely film it. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, well, we could stack okay. it on Zoom and then I can, I could come as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're invited too, mate. Definitely. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there are yeah, there are really good choices as well, and I I don't think any of them have been picked by any of this, so it just kind of shows your character a bit as well, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. So those are the guys I want to have around this this table I'm sat at right now, and yeah, Vietnamese food. Hopefully, Walken won't get triggered by the Vietnamese food, and he'll be all right. Uh, I think Bjork would probably start a fight with Jack Nicholson, I reckon. Um, and yeah, I'd film the whole thing. And it'd be fun. Yeah. So that's the plan. Brilliant, man. Oh, brilliant choices. That's <laughs> us at the end. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having time. me. on my podcast. And I'll post all your links for all your stuff in the show notes. Oh, thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Thanks for listening.